About seven years ago or so, I wandered into this church to become your pastor. And over those seven years, it's been a dramatic personal story of character growth for me as I have um, suffered the slings and arrows of outrageous congregational comments. Um, I'm used to taking responsibility for everything. You know, I come to church and someone says, it's raining today. I didn't do it. Um, but this morning we had your matin chime ye ringers. My word. W-I-O, I-O, I-O. Goodness me. And ding dong and tongues. Fantastic. Bound to be my fault. It's all good for me. Well, the good people at Ballantyne started Christmas in early October. The Christian church generally started on the 27th of November, and we are starting today. Advent. The um, crescendo of complaints has finally reached me. Obviously, people wanted to be dinging their ringers earlier than today. But anyway, here we are. I had James to finish, and I really just wanted to finish it. I was really enjoying it, so I'm sorry about that. So we will do faith, hope, love, joy, mercy. Was that all of them? Peace. Peace? Yeah, I'm sorry, I knew I forgot one. So if you think about it, what would have happened would have been 20 minutes each week in the four weeks up to now, but you just go 20 by 4, and it's 80, and that's what we'll do today. All sweet. Now, I want you to now get on to the Advent business because, you know, times are ticking. I want you to look at this picture that I took the other day. I am that uncle who takes pictures not well. I've chopped half her head off. Who do you think that might be? How did you know, Chris? It's a black hair. Yeah, okay. What's she holding? cross. What's unusual about that cross? Yes, it's a crucifix. Very good. Why was it taken? There's a slightly pulled back version. Where was it taken? Nope. Just out there. But it's a little bit easier to tell. You can get a little bit of better picture. And those of you who are thinking, oh, that's not Emma. Now you look at it and you think, yeah, you yeah, know, that's Emma. And then we got to this. What's she trying to do? Is she trying to exorcise me? You come out. Could be. Sorry? She said, good luck. Was she modeling that crucifix? If so, why? Well, the story is that Jason Rigby, Norman and Bethany's son, died this week. And we had a memorial table up here for his um, service. And the Rigby's decided they'd like a cross. And so we took a picture of it and sent it to them to show them what we had. They eventually went with this one which hangs on the wall out there. So there's quite a story. 
You just get an image and you get some clues as to who it might be, what they're doing, but actually there's a lot more detail that you can't see. And my purpose in developing this illustration will hopefully become clear shortly. But today I want to talk about what Advent is, and this the shortest Advent season in living memory. I read a leaflet about Advent this week that one of our Bible colleges put out, which said that Advent is when we remember Jesus coming to earth, his birth. Yeah, that's Christmas Day, but there's more to it than that. Advent has three foci, or if you prefer the more accurate, three purpi. The first purpi is that we reflect on our own personal journey of coming to faith, which might be very recent, or decades ago, sometime last millennia, or might still be in progress. For me, it's late in the evening of April 13, 1985, for you, it might have been a more gradual process where you actually can't isolate one moment. We are all different and that's all good. How did we see God's spirit moving in us and around us and in the people we were hanging out with who drew us into faith and made us part of his people? That's the first bit of Advent. Number two is... We remember the long yearning for God that preceded the birth of Jesus. Now it was 400 years since the last recognised Old Testament prophet Malachi had ministered to God's people Israel. 400 years, and this is a technical term, is a hua of a long time. A friend of mine pointed out to me the other day that 400 years ago, 1622, it's before any European had seen or come to this country. The King James Bible was hot off the press and selling well. And William Shakespeare had just died. It's quite a while ago. And number three is that we remember the church's long yearning for the second coming of the Lord Jesus. It's been 2,000 years. When, O oh Lord? When? Well, today I want to focus on number two, the long wait that the nation of Israel experienced between Malachi's ministry at about 420 BC and the coming of Jesus. <coughs> now, to do that, I'm going to need to wind the clock back even more to about the year 1000 BC. Now we're 3,000 years ago. And this is the era, era of David, King David and King Solomon and the Jewish kings. And they thrived in a really interesting moment of history. They thrived because Egypt down here was weak and this part of the world over here, Mesopotamia, was weak. And so there was a bit of, of a power vacuum. And even though there was a power vacuum, the trade was still going on between here along the coast. So it was a good time to be Israel. That season lasted to about 715 BC. From that date on, the Jewish nation paid tribute to other empires, which is a little bit like um, an ancient protection racket or what might have happened to you in school. 
you give the school bully your lunch money in return for the school bully not beating you up. That's essentially what they did. They paid, they paid, paid the emperors, emperors off. Later, in 586 BC, the Babylonians marched the Jewish elites off into exile, and about 70 years later again, they were able to return under Cyrus, the Persian king. But they were still dominated by other people. Alexander the Great, the Greek kings, some of whom were especially brutal, brutal even by the standards of that time. Later, the Romans came, and they made Judea a province of their empire. And their way of keeping order, as we've seen, is to stage regular public executions. Charmers. So if you take all of that together, between 715 BC and Jesus' time, the country was independent for about 80 years of that 800. And in the century after Jesus, the Romans finally tired of the Jewish people and destroyed their community altogether. Now, the historical details aren't critical. I'm not going to test you on it. You'll be relieved to know. But I hope that you can hear that it wasn't a happy story. The Jewish people served other masters for over 700 years of a millennium before they were finally scattered to the winds. Now, that early attraction that they had shown way back in the day towards worshipping Canaanite idols, well, that had disappeared by the time they got back from Babylonian exile. They yearned to be free, to live as a community devoted to God, but they were just this little pawn in the great power game of their day. However, during that era, a fuzzy, tangled picture of God-given hope emerged in the scriptures. There were prophecies of the coming of a human king from David's line. David who had been the powerful, somewhat godly king of their best national era, of their salad days. Now it wasn't clear to them whether this was to be a military political figure and then a separate priestly figure, or in fact were they one person. And the priestly figure was prophesied to re-establish God's law and bring righteousness back to the people. They called it Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Christ is Messiah in Greek. Someone who would be anointed with oil for the role, much like a king was anointed with oil for their role or a priest. The set-apart Messiah would usher in a new era of peace and goodwill and wholeness, what the Bible often calls the Shalom of God when all things are finally brought under God's perfect holy order. Now the prophecy suggested that this was going to be inaugurated by a place called the time called the Day of the Lord, which was when God would decisively break into human history and set everything right and lift up his chosen people, Israel. Then later in his book, the prophet Daniel saw another figure who was called the Son of Man, who was this divine, conquering, liberating king. Son of God, and curious enough, was a human title. Son of Man was a divine title. And Jesus frequently called, referred to himself as the Son of Man. Now, some of these prophecies were particularly obscure. 
For example, the virgin being with a child who should be called Emmanuel, which Stu referred to earlier, was aimed at a local situation way back when in Isaiah's time with Ahaz. It was then partially fulfilled by the birth of Mahashalal Hashbaz, who I imagine around home was called Ricky, or something like it. But then it was totally fulfilled in Jesus, Mary and Joseph, 800 years later. And prophecy often has a sort of a two-tiered sort of a dimension to it. There's a partial fulfillment, and then there's an ultimate fulfillment. And that uncertainty makes it much more of an art than a science in trying to work out what's going on. So I imagine some Jewish scholar, we'll call him, call him John, living just prior to that first Christmas. And for John, the biblical story was quite hard to follow. John would have hoped for a Messiah to come who would be God's anointed leader to sort the world out and boot the Romans out first and foremost and restore their nation to being the great power and there'd be a religious, spiritual dimension to that. But he didn't just hope for it. He deeply yearned for it. Now the Pharisees, those people who were around in Jesus' time, expected that the Messiah would come on the day of the Lord a bit like our judgment day, all the God-fearing, righteous, dead people would be raised to life and there would be sort of a judgment and perhaps a punishment, although very vaguely expressed. And if you ever read any of the Jewish extra-biblical writings, they are full of this yearning. Now, we tend to think of the Apocrypha and got the Gospel of Thomas or Peter and that sort of thing as nonsense, and often they are, but many of them capture this deep heartbeat of God's people. Now, it's a little bit like today, I might read uh, C.S. Lewis or Henry now, and they enrich me, Christian writers, but they're not scripture. Same with a lot of non-canonical books, like the book of Enoch. There's good stuff in it. Now, most of our Advent seasonal music, when we're not dinging, donging, and rhyming, what were we doing before? Clangers and things. Um, is focused on the events of one day. It's all about Christmas Day. There's one notable exception, and it's based on that prophecy in Isaiah I was talking about before, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. And I want just to play you one minute of my favourite version of this. Just have a listen to this. The one great Advent hymn of the church.
Can you hear the emotion in that? The yearning, the passion. It's done by piano guys, these two Mormon musicians. And they've captured, I think, in that the deep Jewish yearning for freedom and righteousness that was focused on Messiah. They were hoping for a Messiah who's going to neatly this national revival. We come to the same picture with the light of Jesus and his new covenant revelation to make better sense of it. We see Jesus, the Christ Messiah, for all the nations, not just for God's old covenant people, Israel. We've also received as part of the historic deposit of faith and understanding that as part of that, sin really needs to be addressed, that we need to be forgiven in order to be saved. And Jewish thought pre Jesus, the doctrine of sin wasn't that well developed. The shalom of God, which we often call the kingdom of God, was inaugurated, it was started by Jesus, but it's not yet complete. We too yearn for the completion at the second coming of the Lord Jesus, when there will be judgment, restoration, and ultimate salvation for God's creation. And all these various figures that you come across in the Old Testament revelation, I've talked about Daniel, son of man. Uh, Isaiah 7's Emmanuel, God with us. Psalm 2's anointed son of God. Jacob's lion in Genesis 49. The military king referred to in Numbers 24. The root of Jesse in Isaiah 11. Are all brought together and embodied in the person of Jesus. All messianic roads lead to him. Well, the final figure that I want to mention is Isaiah's suffering servant from Isaiah 52 and 3. Jewish thought saw the Messiah, as I've said, as this triumphant, conquering priest king. So they weren't quite sure what to do if Isaiah's prophecy of this wounded, suffering servant of God didn't quite fit the narrative. Perhaps they thought the suffering servant was meant to represent the whole people of Israel, they certainly knew a fair bit about serving others and national pain. But have a listen to this. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. He'll be triumphant. Just as there were many who were appalled at him in disgrace on a cross, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations. He will bless. He will honour. He will forgive. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He was no oil painting, no soap ad, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, by Jew and by Roman, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. 
Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Yet surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed, we are forgiven. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took our place. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, the thieves on the cross, and with the rich in his death, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And, through, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring, us, and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities, their sins. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What I've just read to you is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Some call it the gospel in the Old Testament. It's the clearest prophetic picture we have of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Isaiah's original audience 2,800 years ago actually yearned for the same thing that we yearn for today. You and I are both kings and queens as we lead each other by the influence we have on each other. The difference is we just don't get on Netflix that much. You and I are both priests because we administer the grace of God to each other by gathering to worship together, doing life together, sharing our resources and gifts for the greater community good. We bless and minister to each other. Well, remember that third purpi of Advent. Reflect on our own story of how God has led us, th us through life. Advent's about gratitude for what God has done and is doing in Jesus, our lives, and in our church. It's also about hope. Hope that draws us forward with the expectation that one day everything will be made, remade as it was meant to be. Being careful to follow the rules, no matter how godly you might think they are, will not feed your spirit. 
but putting your hope in the saving work of Jesus will get you out of bed tomorrow morning and every day thereafter. Please reflect on this this Christmas. Amen. Thank you. Musicians would come back, please. Now the last song is called All to Us. Fabulous song. Uh, so let's all stand and sing our final song together. <clears throat> We have to thank Jamesa for standing in to be a rhythm guitarist this morning. Our pianists are either in England or Akaroa or some far-flung part of the kingdom. So thank you, Jamesa, for playing for us. Precious cornerstone, show foundation, you are faithful to Hey.
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have a good week. Thank you.